Hey everyone, welcome to the Journeyman Firefighter Podcast. I'm your host today, Grant Schwalbe, and uh, I'm excited today. I've got with me retired Captain Brian Emenecker from Camden Fire. Uh, he did 24 years there in Camden, uh, 27 total years in the fire service. I ended up seeing him at Into the Job Fire Conference, and I'll tell you, his presentation had, had me and everybody that was there on fire. Uh, I'm excited to share him with you, and we're going to jump, jump into it. Uh, how are you doing today, Brian? Good, brother. Glad to be here, man. Good. So tell us a little bit. We, we know you're a Camden firefighter, retired out as a captain, out of special ops. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey to the fire service and, and your career? <laughs> the, uh, it's probably very similar to a lot of guys, uh, in a way. Uh, I grew up right up the street from a local firehouse. I was about three doors up from the local firehouse. Uh, the town I grew up in was called Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Uh, it's a large town, like a bedroom community. Uh, and the firehouse that I was, uh, lived right up the street from, you know, they had career guys during the day and then, you know, volunteers, you know, the rest of, you know, would supplement, uh, the other times during the day. And back then in the eighties, uh, volunteers were abundant. We had a tremendous amount of them, uh, at our firehouse and they were, the guys were excellent. Just knew the trade was really into it. And uh, so I started there. Uh, I just I remember running down the street when I was a little kid, watching the rigs pull out. You know, when the big whistle would go off, and I could tell you that the rigs would pull out to be a 1968 Horn, a 1955 Ford, a 1947 Midship LaFrance convertible ladder. Uh, so it was just um, I had stated in the in that end of the job symposium that it was like a little boy's dream, and and yeah, and it really was. Uh, it just bit me when I was a kid. Uh, never let go. So I joined the volunteers when I was about 14, 15 years old as like an explorer kind of thing and just stuck with it, fell in love with it. And uh, as I got older, I just started taking more training. But I was very fortunate, the guys that I was around, um, just incredible mentors, uh, you know, took me under their wing and uh, showed me the way. And uh, that's the foundation where I started. And I'll never forget that. And it, it was uh, so then I knew as time went on, uh, that this was what I wanted to do for a living. And uh, so I went out and started taking a number of uh, exams all over the place and, um, you know, did well on some of them, didn't do well on others. And at the time I knew that as, you know, time was going forward, Cherry Hill became such a busy town in terms of infrastructure, population, the run, uh, the run numbers just started skyrocketing through the roof. So what happened was they consolidated all the districts in that town, became one big fire department. And they ran an entry-level exam. They were going to hire a bunch of guys. I scored really well, uh, got on the job in 94. And, um, you know, I was there. But, you know, it was, it was like I said, it was a great department. Still is a great department. I learned a lot. I owe everything to the Cherry Hill Fire Department. Uh, but me and the personality that I am, uh, I just wanted to apply my trade on a regular basis. And Camden City was always, um, you know, the hornet's nest of, you know, application of fire duty uh, because it was such a, you know, it's the typical Northeast city. Uh, we're known for our fire duty as a busy fire department. Uh, it used to be called the biggest little city in America. And uh, so as time went on, I, I knew that I wanted to be there in Camden. The test came out. My family's originally from Camden. Uh, we settled there in 1857. And uh, so took the test, scored really well. Um, I ranked 21 out of like, uh, I think it was like a thousand people. So I kind of figured I was going to get on the job and uh, got it on. And, you know, 
fulfilled that dream. And uh, just as time went on, when I got on the job in Camden, uh, you want to talk about being blessed to work around the guys uh, and learn from guys that were Vietnam veterans. A lot of them guys saw some serious heat in Vietnam, and then they came home and fought the urban war. And uh, just to ride the rig with those guys and learn from them was just, it's one of the biggest blessings of my life, other than my family. Um, I, I can never repay what those guys taught me and, uh, you know, what I learned from them. They were just men of the, salt of the earth guys, some of the greatest men I've ever had the opportunity to know. So anybody that's been around you for more than about three seconds understands you're uh, uh, pretty, you've got a lot of values and you're not afraid to share them and you're not afraid that you don't back down. Did you get a lot of that from, from all those guys that you worked with when you started out or I, where'd that come you from? You know, I, I uh, that, that came from like my dad. That came from when I was younger. Uh, growing up, I was, I played a ton of athletics, uh, baseball, hockey, football, uh, and you know, I was, again, just incredibly fortunate. I was, I was a good ball player uh, in baseball. And, uh, you know, that was my bread and butter. Baseball was. I had uh, gotten recruited a couple times from school for schools to, to play. And uh, obviously it didn't work out, but uh, no biggie. But I just had that. I always had that attitude that, you know, I'm out here. I'm not out here to, to, uh, to look good. I'm not out here to have fun. I'm out here to win. I'm out here to put as hard as I can, everything I got in my tank and leave it out here. And if I fail, at least I failed, I didn't quit. And so I would always apply that to basically everything that I've done in my life. I wasn't going to let anybody tell me that I couldn't do what I wanted to do. And I had a lot of people telling me, oh, Camden City, they ain't going to hire you. You're this, you're that, you're not the right color and all this crap, you know. And, uh, you know, misery loves company and people that are like that. I just amputate them for my life. I don't need them. They're, they're cancer and they're not going to go anywhere. And, um, that's, you know, that's what it is. But I attribute a lot of that to athletics, you know, my dad and yeah, those, those guys that taught me. And, um, so it was like a collage of stuff, you know, uh, information and feet and be honest with you, man, having, you know, their foot put in my ass a few times, you know, to straighten me out. So, which was a good thing. Um, we talked earlier about uh, attitude uh, being everything, uh, mentally and physically. Why don't you, you're, you're a pretty in shape guy to be retired. <laughs> uh, yeah. Look at the, uh, the big scheme of, 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 of things. Talk to us about like how you kept that mental attitude up um, throughout everything and even what you did physically that to be on top of your game throughout your career um i i just again i was i always look at it like you know every time the bells went off i got on the rig we were going out for a fight and you know no matter what the fight is from car wreck to a work and fire you're not there to look good you're fighting to win and there just wasn't like i'm inheriting this problem uh, me, the guys I worked with as a unit, were inheriting this problem. That's what we were sworn to do. And I was going to be the solution, not just me, but everybody was, period, end of story. And, you know, so I, I knew, like, I started in the gym when I was about 14 or 15 years old. And just, you know, it, I really took to it. I enjoyed it. Uh, I always enjoyed doing something that was difficult. Um, and, again, if I failed at it, at least I didn't quit. But uh, I think getting, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is the biggest thing. And 
So what I did was I just hit the weights real hard, um, you know, incorporated a lot of cardio work and, uh, you know, just, and watched my diet. Like I didn't eat like a bird. I eat basically anything I want, but, but uh, I just watch myself. And I look at it that, you know, as firemen, look at the big thing that we always have is heart attack, heart attack, heart attack. I have over 28 guys that I work with uh, that are now gone. They've passed on. Some of them were retired for literally uh, a week. I got one gentleman that retired with me in December. He passed away the next month. And it's like 28 guys that I worked with in Kansas City that are now passed on. And it's like, you know, you get one ticket on the merry-go-round of life. And I'm not spoiling it. So I would preach to these guys in the fire department, look, there's a gym that's upstairs. It's free. They're paying you to work out. Okay? Stop being a lazy ass. Stop looking for excuses. All right. And get to work. Because at the end of the day, when you go out for that fight, there's no excuses. The people are there. You're there for the people, period. It's not about you. It's not about all the ribbons on your chest and all that shit. It's about you and the men getting out there and getting the job done, period. And so that's just basically the, the attitude and the, and the mindset that I always wanted to apply. Now, there's a downside to that because I am, uh, to, for a very big fault, at times too intense for me. And that's a fault of mine. So I got as I got older, I'd really have to check myself. And uh, not like, you know, never yelling and screaming at guys. I never did anything like that unless they did something really stupid. You know what I mean? Like touch a down wire or some crap like that. But, uh, you know, I never demanded like, you know, this has got to be done. You know, all I said to the guys was two things. When the bells go off, bust your ass to the rig. And two, when we get to the job, be in position and work your ass off until we're done. And that's it. And, you know, we used to get guys come up to us during the job afterwards and they're saying, you know, how come Captain B and all of them guys just run circles around everybody? And it's a simple answer because we don't sit in the recliners and watch freaking football all day and talk about, you know, uh, guys that played in freaking college 30 years ago and you, you know their mother's maiden name for crying out loud. You know, we're out there, you know, as a fighting force. And you know what? If you're going to beat on your chest and say you're a good fireman, and then you show up to the job and you run it through a half a cylinder and you're done for the rest of the day. You know, you're not, you're a turd. And there's guys out there that are all show no go. Believe me, I've seen dudes that are built like brick shit houses. And then when they get to the fire, you know, they're, uh, they're like moles. They just hide somewhere around a rig or some crap like that. Uh, and I had no problem calling people out like that because you're putting all the guys in jeopardy because now the entire fire fighting force on that fire ground is as strong as you are. And you're the weakest link. So physically fit, I'm a firm believer, strong body, strong mind, and you will be able to push yourself and, you know, conduct yourself in that professional manner, which you're getting paid for is to put yourself in a position for other people. So as you went through your career, I assume you kept that same attitude. How did it change uh, dealing with other guys on your crew when you were a fireman with them, as opposed to as you moved up and became their boss? That's a great question. and. The, the answer I could give you is, is the guys, those guys are just so, they're so dialed in. And I got just so much respect for those guys. They literally made me a better man. And, and so many aspects of life, not just in the fire service. They were, they were so much better than me. These guys are so grounded, so humble, you know, um, it just was like, 
snapping pieces of puzzle together. You know, um, it just, it really, it just, it worked. You know, I remember when I, I got promoted uh, and I went, I was sent over to squad seven and I had like four classmates in the company that, you know, came on the job with me and all hard hitting guys, just solid dudes. And, uh, you know, and we've worked with each other for years on the same platoon and, you know, they know the way I am and I know the way they are. And that was that, man. It was just that I was incredibly blessed to just have the guys and work with the guys that I had the opportunity with because it was such a well-oiled machine. It was, we could just anticipate each other's thoughts and the respect level was just through the roof. Was there times that we had to sit down and buckle down and have a talk? Yeah, there was, but it was nothing detrimental that would hurt the company or anything like that. But uh, in terms of change or difference, really, I would always tell the guys, just refer to me as, you know, as B or whatever like that. You know, I, I, the horns on the collar don't make the man. The captain's always good as his men. And, uh, you know, you could be a hard-hitting dude with a great reputation and inherit a company of turds, and that's your job to bring them men up. And if you don't, that's going to rest on you. And, um, you know, so I was blessed. I really was. The guys I, I worked with, and they made me a better man, and they were better than me. And, uh, you know, I, I just – they're still working. They're still on the job, and um, they're just – they're Spartans. I can't say enough good things about them. Hey, so into the job conference, you talked a little bit about uh, um, the accountability of the officer to the crew. And uh, you mentioned when things go well, the men did it. If it goes sideways, it's the officer's uh, problem. Can you talk about that a little bit and accountability? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've, wit I've witnessed throughout my career, uh, you know, certain captains, chiefs, uh, they were very quick to do one of these deals is push their fingers to the side and go, well, chief, it wasn't me. It was the guys. And I witnessed it a number of times and it's gross. It's disgusting. You know, you can't sit there and act like a captain for five minutes. And then next thing you know, someone asks you, Hey man, how come this went this way or that way? When we asked you to put your positioning over here. And then next thing you know, the captain points his fingers, you know, to the, you know, at the chief and say, well, the guys did it. The guy I told him not to, but the guys did it, you know, that's terrible. You're just leaving your men out to dry and you will find yourself on a very small island. Um, so, you know, if you're going to wear the horns, if you're going to wear the, the light blue shirt or whatever shirt color that you guys have to wear, then the bottom line is this, you're going to accept all the responsibility that comes along with it, good and bad. So when things go really well, your men did it. Your men did it. I have never in my career ever put myself in for a freaking award. And I've seen that a number of times from other guys. And I was approached by chiefs saying, well, what about you? What about me? What about me? This isn't about me. Because I, I got a fat rat's ass. I could care less about it. You want to recognize these men. These men are the, one, the backbone of the fire department. And when things don't go well on the fire ground, whether it be bad positioning or, you know, just some screw-ups in, in terms of the company operation, then, yeah, I'm taking the hit because I, quote-unquote, am the captain. I am the one that's in charge of the company operations. And the men are directed under me. Now, I got guys, my junior guy had 16 years on at the time. And so, you know, again, it was a well-oiled machine. Uh, the guys could anticipate, you know, operations on the fire ground because they were just, you know, so dialed in. But uh, we would always come back from a job and say, okay, we did this really well. We did that well. But what can we do better? Because it wasn't like if it was just perfection. It was the fact that, you know, we always felt that we could have done something better. 
you know, whether it be, you know, some vertical ventilation or maybe searching, splitting up a little faster on, you know, on the fire ground or reading the building a little bit better. But, um, you know, I, I would always try to push that upon guys, like guys would just get promoted and they were like, hey, B, man, it's, it, you know, can you just give me some tips, this and that? I said, yeah, it's not about you. It's about your men. Period. End of story. If you don't stick out in front of your men and stick up for them, no matter what, Okay, and they may be wrong in something, and there will be consequences for that. But again, you're the captain; you're the one that's running the show. So it's all reflection upon you. So the greatest um, uh, compliment that I personally think you can get is, you know, if you're a captain that's working in my spot on overtime and working with my guys, and then you know, like a week or two later, you see me say, "Yo, Brian, man, your guys are fucking unbelievable. You're just so dialed in. Great guys to work with." That's the best compliment you can ever have. You know, because, again, it's a reflection upon the leadership within that company and the guys are putting it to work. So that's that's how I see it. That's outstanding. So you said you had a pretty senior crew. And I imagine that the uh, the guys going to want to work with you in special operations and stuff are a special type of breed. Um, how do you keep them motivated? You know, I, I feel like the base level. They're probably pretty dialed in with that. So how do you keep training fresh? You talked about anticipating operational movement and being in position. You know, uh, uh, as, as well as I do, the good companies find a way to be in the right position at the right time. How do you just, how do you do that? How do you teach that? And how do you get that to the guys? I, I think I, I, what I found, what was working for me a lot was just trying to be a motivator, you know, trying to be a motivator, trying to be that guy that, you know, um, getting the guys in the huddle and saying, all right, man, here's the deal. There's a wall in front of us. We're not going to go around it. We're going to go through this thing. And this is the way we're going to do it. You know, we're going to, we're going to beat this thing down. We're going to jackhammer it. We're going to do whatever we can. And we're going to get to the other side and accomplish this objective. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with when we're up there in the gym together, when the four or five of us are up there in the gym together, you know, and, and we're pushing each other. You know, we're pushing each other for each set, each rep. And then you get out on the street and you start doing your training and you're doing those reps. And, you know, it bleeds over. You know, it just bleeds over because the guys are going to, they, they, they get so uh, fired up, they, they, they absorb so much more. So therefore, as we get older, you know, obviously I think we can all agree as we get older, our attention span isn't as great as it used to be. So I think if we keep it short and intense and we absorb it and say, hey, man, it's us, guys. There ain't nobody better. When we pull up, the Chiefs are looking over their shoulder for us. They see us coming down the street. They know work's going to get done. And this is where we need to be when it's like this or like this or like that. But, again, conditions dictate tactics, so we may have to deviate different things. So that's what I found worked for me. I kept it short. I kept it sweet. But I kept it intense. And – the guys absorbed it, and just because they were type A meat eaters, they just, you know, sunk their teeth into it all the time. So when it came to, like, the special operations, again, we would start with, like, uh, just tool labs, stuff like that, different equipment identification, use and care and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I'm not spending five, six hours doing that because you're just going to lose people, you know. You, you get in there, you know, on the apparatus floor, hour and a half, two hours, they absorb it. Next thing you know, you see guys are in the kitchen. They're on YouTube looking the stuff up that we just did, watching a couple-minute videos here. And then the next tour is, hey, Cap, man, you know, let's put this together again. Cool. I don't even have to say nothing. Like, they're coming to me, and they're saying, all right, man, I want to do this again, or I want to do something like this. Can we try this? Yeah, sure. You know, so I just – I always looked at it like if I'm feeding energy 
I'm going to get that electricity back. And, and that's, and I did. And again, it's only, it's a testament to the men. It's because they were so into it. Yeah. I think the positivity and hard work is contagious. And I love that you're, you said that uh, you noticed that in the workouts. I noticed my crew, we work out together and it's, it absolutely transfers uh, the, the, the right. seeing how each other works to encouraging each other. And uh, there is a direct transfer. So if that's contagious, I know also in your class, you said panic is contagious. You want to talk about that yeah. a little bit? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and being, you know, working in the, uh, in the urban area that I did for so long, uh, being one of the worst cities in America. And again, our fire duty, you know, being well known throughout the country and whatnot. But, um, you know, we, we all as firemen, we all have been in some sticky situations and, and you know, we got to fall back and try to calm ourselves down in certain situations where we'd be cut off or, you know, maybe a localized collapse or some stuff like that. And we may be with guys that are relatively new. And, uh, you know, I've witnessed it where, you know, we start seeing somebody and hearing somebody getting a little, you know, antsy, if you will. And, uh, but that is a contagious uh, virus, if you will, and no pun intended, but it, it's, because you'll see other guys that maybe they're not as dialed in and then they'll, it'll start to bleed out a little bit. So, you know, we got to really, that's when these senior guys and these other guys on the job that have been on for a while, that's where they got to take these younger guys under their wing, talk to them about, Hey man, you know, just things can get pretty hairy and we can try to control the situation all we want, but the bottom line, you're never going to take risk out of being a fireman. Like I said that there in the symposium that, you get the last warning when you throw your turnout gear on, there's a big placard on the inside of your coat that says, yo, you could die doing this. And this is the last warning you're going to get. And I think it comes back down to like mentorship, uh, being positive with guys. Now, again, I said this out there as well, you know, we're all human beings. You're not going to come in the firehouse every day and be like, rah, 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 let's go get them. You know, we all have up and downs and stuff like that. But that's when you, again, like you just said, we feed off of one another. So you know, you can't let the men down. Uh, the other thing that I talk about in terms of uh, panic being contagious with the fire victim. And <clears throat> when you look at that video of the radio station nightclub fire, it's the best training video of human behavior in times of panic I've ever seen. Because they just revert back to this one thing that they know. Uh, the front door was behind them. You know, and obviously we know the horrific uh, consequences of that incident. And so you see when they start panicking, it's just a flock of sheep and bees on honey, you know, so it's a contagious thing and uh, it's a very dangerous thing. So, you know, that, that is why I, I talked a lot about primary search, you know, some years back where the left, left, right, right stuff, I just don't jive with that. You know, I, I don't jive with that. Um, and it's because I just follow the human behavior in times of panic. They revert back to any, just the only thing that they know. And this is the way I came in. This is the way I got to come out. I know other way. Or I'll go to a window or a bathroom or something like that. So let's talk about primary search a bit. Um, I'm a nut with primary search and, and, and coming up with plans. And I like it based on actual what humans are going to do. Why don't you talk to us about that and how that played into your role as you're the captain, you're assigned primary search. What's your plan when you're, when you're going up to a building? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, as we're coming in, obviously I'm listening on the phone, all the reports. and I learned a lesson, you know, more than once about uh, coming into a work in fires. One, never listen to what the police report says. Never listen to EMS reports because it's going to be totally different when you turn the corner. Um, so my eyes gather facts. I can maybe 
you know, corroborate what I'm hearing from the battalion on the radio and when I'm en route. Uh, so I can do continue like a size up as, you know, as I know the address. Uh, but then when I pull up, I get there, my eyes gather facts. So I look at, if the fire is visible, I'm looking at location and extent of fire coupled with that type of construction and type of occupancy. So with those three things, if I get them under my helmet real quick, my guys know that, okay, we got fire on the, on the division A second floor, the guy we're splitting up. Two guys are going to go right to the rear, myself and, and the guy behind me in the rig are going to go through the front door. And we'll chase hose lines up, all right, aid them in stretching the hose line. That's the other thing. With the smaller fire departments, you know, I would always see a guy say, oh, I don't touch hose line, I break out in hives. Well, I got news for you. It's like I was listening to the podcast you did with, uh, um, oh, geez, the guy from Chicago, sweetheart of a guy. Um, oh, uh, Larry McCormick? Yeah, Larry. Yeah, I'm sorry. What a great dude. What a great dude. And he made such a great point. It's like, you know, but we support the nozzle guy. You know, at the end of the day, all of us knuckle draggers and rescue or truck companies, the bottom line is the nozzle guy in the hose line puts the fire out. So we support them. So if we can just, like in a smaller department like Camden, if we're going in through the front door, we'll pick up the initial hose line, help them pump it in a little bit, and then we break off. So I try to work as close as I possibly can to the body of fire while putting myself in the arteries of that building, all right? Right at the front door, bottom of the stairs, middle of the stairs, top of the stairs, hallways, bathrooms, bedrooms at any given time. So I place a great emphasis on the bedrooms no matter what time of day. Uh, and then, you know, in Camden with being two, three, four-story rows, semi-detached wood frames and stuff like that with peak roofs and stuff. Um, so they're a little smaller, you know, and um, you have a better opportunity to put yourself in those arteries quickly uh, to find people. Again, if it's a moldable dwelling, uh, you know, I just just recently, I shouldn't say recently, but right before I retired, we had one hell of a fire with numerous people trapped, people jumping out windows. It was, I think it was like 11 or 12 people trapped in this mobile dwelling. And they were jumping out windows and guys around the one end and one truck and other companies, they were just getting, getting their ass kicked, pulling people out windows. And we pulled up into the alley. I looked up and I counted four windows over and I seen a guy hanging out the window with a flashlight and the smoke was just pouring over him like a freight train. And um, for a minute there, I thought it was one of our guys. And I said, holy cow, this is one of our guys. We got to get up in there. So myself and my, one of my other guys and then Squad 7, we started making a push up in there. And uh, we got turned into the hallway. And it just, we couldn't make it. We just could not make it. It was weird on our bellies. But because I knew I counted four windows over from the outside, I knew he was in a bathroom because of the size of the window. So it was like big window, big window, small window, right? Like that. So I knew that we were like the fourth apartment down on the left and he's in the bed, uh, bathroom, which is to the C side of the building. So we get up in there. We finally, you know, we, the nose, uh, nose, the hose line gets in there, starts knocking it down and boom, we start making a push. We get in there and, uh, you know, lo and behold, we find this guy, missed the guy right next to him is his brother. And we find this guy, we pull him out. Unfortunately, both of those guys uh, succumb to their injuries, but, you know, I was just always a firm believer throughout my career and the people that I did find in burning buildings, I've always found them in the same spots, you know, in the spots that I just mentioned, the stairwell, right in front of the door, windows and hallways, and then bathrooms once in a while. Um, so I just said, okay, you know, this isn't rocket science. I'm not going to waste my time covering real estate that, you know, doesn't need to be covered let's get right to where location extent fires with type of occupancy that way i know the arteries 
I could put myself in positioning there for the best advantage to find somebody. And it worked. It worked out pretty well. Can you describe how you move through a building with your partner? Would you guys do a split search oriented search or what's the coordination between you and your partner? Yeah. Yeah. So what we would do is we'd get up in there and if, let's say for a second floor situation, right? Uh, fire on the first floor, basement, second floor search. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I would get up to the top of the stairs. I'd be like, Hey Bobby, I'm going left. You go. Yeah. Cap, I'm going to the rear. We're good. And good thing is we would know that just keep your ear tuned to the radio uh, with the hose line advancement, the extinguishment effort that's being in place, uh, you know, reports that are given, hey, we're at the scene of the fire. So it gives you a little more, uh, I guess, comfortability, if you will, if that's the word I could use, knowing that the hose line's engaged in forward progress of extinguishment. And yes, we would split because we're covering more real estate that way. And again, when you're talking about row houses and stuff like that, there's not a whole lot of square footage to begin with. So the quicker you cover it, the, more, the faster you're going to find your victims. You know, no doubt you got a lot of sets and reps in your searches. How are you moving through a, a room with really low to no visibility? Are you searching with your hands and leaving your tool? Are you swing yes. your tool? Talk to, talk to us about that. No, I, I don't swing the tool. I, 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 I would do that like when I was a young fireman and I started finding out. I'm like, nah, man, this is like a harpoon, right? Because I, I carried the Halligan bar. And I, I always loved the pro bar and that was my tool, but I had to have a six foot hook with me as well. So basically what I would do is if I got into a room or like a zero visibility uh, area in a hallway, I would just lay my, at the spindle rail, I'd lay the tools right there. Cause I knew they were going to be right there. And I just get down and I would just start using my hands to believe it or not, you, you know, you're gaining more, um, you're not, you're not taxing your body that much by waving this tool around, you know, and a lot of guys may think, ah, oh, it's no big deal. Well, you know, you keep doing it. That tool's going to get locked up on something. It hits all kinds of stuff. You're thinking, oh, it's a bag. Now it's a body. My hands are what identifies, you know, what I'm looking for. So I, yes, I would use my hands more than the tool. Absolutely. I think that's the biggest secret that nobody ever everybody i talk to that's getting a lot of fire duty that's what they do but for some reason it just it never seems to get out and no. tools don't tools tools don't have feelings and i'm not going to wave around an eight pound something and tax right. my body you know it's exactly silly. exactly and you know imagine this imagine taking that you know uh ads into the halligan bar and swinging it around and next thing you know swoop right into somebody you know, because, you know, guys, I've seen guys do primary searches and they turn the whole room upside down. Like, I'm, I'm like, yo, dude, what are you doing here? You're like a demolition company here. You're disturbing things that are actually landmarks for you in case you should get disoriented. Now you're changing the whole layout of this room because you can't get off of this wall. Well, what are you doing here? You know, and that, and that is a lot of times that is actually taught in fire academies. Stay on the wall, stay on the wall, stay on the wall. And it's like, dude, you're, look, man, I've never found anybody hugging a wall. I never did. You know, I, I, I tell you where I found it. And, you know, there, it's good to get yourself oriented in a room. But, you know, like I, I told you, I carry a six-foot hook, too. So if I'm going up a ladder, let's say like a VES, take the window out. And I'll take that, and it's, you know, uh, zero visibility. I'll take the Halligan, obviously sound the floor put the halogen on one side of the, like, let's say to the left side of the window. And I take my six foot hook and I run it in to the room and hook it right on the sill. And I leave that hook like that jettison into the room. 
right? And I leave that there for a reason because it's a landmark for myself. So that way I know, God forbid, I do get, you know, a little disoriented and hooked back to a wall. I know I can get, once I feel that hook, there's my window. So I would, I would do that with that six foot hook and just lay it out. Plus, it also, that hook can also give you a little bit of leverage should you find somebody. Maybe you can, you know, situate them on the hook a little bit and, you know, use that hook as leverage to get somebody out on the ladder. Um, and, you know, that's what I would do. But, yeah, man, I'm a, such a big proponent of that. Use your hands. Use your hands because it, your, your dexterity's there. Your body mobility's there. Uh, you're not taxing yourself. And I do think that you can actually um, calm yourself down. You know, because when we are searching for people, you know, your heart's going, the pump's going a little good because when you do feel somebody like, holy smokes, I just found somebody. You know what I mean? And uh, so I, that's, I agree 100%. I, mean, I, heard, I heard Larry talking about that too on the podcast that you sent me. And man, I couldn't agree more. You know, that's just the way to go, in my opinion. So you talked about finding a victim. In the victims you've found, what has been uh, in those experiences now, coming out of that, how are you teaching the younger guys to, to get the victims out? What have you found okay. that maybe, maybe we're not teaching in fire academies that somebody will be surprised at? Um, you know, I would always, uh, and I hate that it's going to sound condescending or something when I say this, but just forgive me for saying it's no other way I can put it is, you know, all these drags and parries that they show you in these IFSTA manuals and all that, you know what, man, enough, stop. You know and I know, when you find a body in a burning building, they are, it's almost as if they got dipped in soap, okay? It's nothing but slickness, all right? I've pulled, me and other guys have pulled on people so hard that we broke their arms to get them out. And they were big people, okay? And so when it comes to, like, certain carries or drags, uh, you know, I think maybe one of the only ones that we really put to work a lot was just, getting that one leg up on the victim and kind of hitting them like a, a blocking dummy and just push and pull, push and pull, push and pull. And, uh, you know, again, you know, we all know dead weight is a, that's just, it just doesn't cooperate. And then when you find these people in these buildings, you know, their skin is so slick, you know, from either burns or just, you know, as it happens, you know, in a working fire, uh, they're slipping right out of your hands. You know, and I, I've seen it where I, I can remember, um, well, I'll just go back to the fire I was just talking about. When, when I found that gentleman in the bathroom, uh, he was in the tub. And again, because I, I counted the windows and I knew where he was at. So we find him and he was a big dude. He was over 300 pounds. And the guy that was with me searching, my boy Elmy, uh, he's a monster. You know, he's got like a 400 pound bench. He's just, a, he's a beast, right? So we're dragging this guy and we're literally you know, locking his arms up with us. And we're just, you know, pulling and pulling and pulling and calling for help. The guys finally get up there. And uh, it just comes down to horsepower, you know, and, and grab them. I mean, you could, do, you could do all this all you want and fold your arms all you want. Uh, again, dead weight, it's Play-Doh. It's just they don't want to behave with you. So you got to just grab whatever you can grab and as tight as you can and, uh, you know, start pulling. Uh, what else what else are we missing on the whole search thing what else have we have you found that maybe uh ways that you've helped reorient or what communication between you and your partner uh 
Kenneth, talk us through anything else that you got. So I know you've gotten a, yeah, lot, we, a lot of time. Yeah, we got, uh, you know, we like I said, when we would split up, uh, right before we would split up, I said, listen, just give me a holler. It, you know, you got somebody, you know, what, and I'll come right back to you. Um, or if you get disoriented, don't move. Stay where you're at. If the conditions permit you to stay, stay where you're at. You know, activate the device, and I'll come and get you. Uh, obviously, entanglement, transmit your mayday. Uh, if you can get yourself out, then cancel the mayday. Um, I'm sure that any good chief is probably going to withdraw his people out of there anyway after that mayday's uh, transmitted. But, um, yeah, I mean, we just, you know, it wasn't constant. I shouldn't say constant communication. I was just a firm believer, like, you have to have radio discipline. You get so many guys would get on that radio and just want to be like a DJ and just talk about the stupid stuff. You know what I mean? Like, oh, the gas is secure, the electric secure. Yeah, we still got four progress to fire in this building, bro. I, I'm not, I'm not really concerned right now about the gas or the electric. I'm concerned about searching this building and and this extinguishment effort that we have in place being adequate enough to put this fire out. So, pertinent information: finding fire victims, fire extension, building conditions, integrity, and stuff like that. Uh, you know. <laughs> Just pay attention to those details, those critical details. And, uh, and it comes down to it, the, the boiling point of it is being professional. And that's what being professional is. I mean, you know, we get paid a decent salary to do this job. And, um, you know, we, we got to take pride in doing it. It's not, it. You're not being a gonger. You're not being a, uh, you know, some wacko because you're, you know, you're into the job. Um, you're into the job because, one, you want to do it well you want to do it correctly and you also probably have it in your mind say if, if i'm not into it this job's going to bite me in the ass in a bad way so you know to sit down and just pick apart and you know in terms of our search that would be something that we do a lot of critical thinking and talking about after a job you know <clears throat> and one thing i failed to mention is you know if we have a abandoned building which we had thousands of uh, and searching in there, you know, uh, I would treat every abandoned building as a structure fire, not a contents fire, because those buildings have had uh, salvage done to them by taking pipe electric out, so voids are exposed. Um, so the structural components of the building are going to be vulnerable to fire and much faster progression. Previous fires, you know, weathers uh, and people that dwell in them. And so your search in those buildings is going to be a little more technical. It's going to be a little more um, cautious. Uh, in a way, you know, because there's so many things that you got to contend with. Could be holes in the floors. You could have buckets of human waste all over the place. Uh, you know, engine blocks in them or whatever like that. So anything that could possibly jam you up. And the big thing is wearing your air pack correctly. Snap your belt. Stop walking around with your belt undone, thinking you're Johnny Badass because you're not. Because all it takes is that to get hung up on something. And now you just put yourself in a position to have someone, you got to rely on someone else to come and get you because you didn't take a second just to wear your, your, your gear properly. And um, those are things that I really dissected in terms of the primary search to the men. Uh, don't have anything hanging off your gear, you know, that can be a possible entanglement. Wear the SCBA correctly. And, you know, I think your search will be a lot smoother that way. Cause we're going to run into places that are, Hoarding conditions, they're small, and like I said, abandoned buildings with all kinds of other, you know, issues that we contend with. 
Um, can you talk a little bit about the uh, occupied and unaccounted for? I remember you told a story during the during the symposium uh, from Mike Mike Turpak. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mike was Mike Turpak out of Jersey City. He's probably one of the best guys in the fire service out there. Uh, he's retired out of uh, Jersey City, deputy chief, uh, dear friend of mine, one of the most sincere guys that I know. And when I was younger, uh, again, he took me under his wing. I used to go to a lot of his classes. We hit it off as friendship. And I remember he was talking about search and then, uh, you know, talking about, you know, everybody talks, oh, primary search, primary search. And then think about this. And I, it just rang this like light bulb moment for me when he said, yeah, I was a young fireman and we're going in this multiple dwelling and we're like, you know, primary search, primary search. And we're like, you know, okay, yeah, inside the building, inside the building. And they're like, okay, everybody's accounted for. No, not everybody's accounted for. We have people that are still missing. There are loved ones out here saying they were in there. Where are they? And that's when I told that story of they found a fire victim that jumped and he landed behind a bunch of shrubs, you know, outside the building. Uh, <clears throat> Bobby Presser was telling me the story of a young lady that they had that jumped out of the building in New York City and they found her hours later in the backyard of another place. You know, so when you're thinking about it and, and you got fire that comes in as people reported trapped and then it's confirmed that they're trapped, right? The first thing, especially at night, especially when you guys go to the rear, all right, is guys, flashlight, whatever. If you got your 24 or 20 foot extension ladder and you're out there doing the OV, it's just real quick, man. Run that flashlight on the backyard, on the ground, in the alley. If there's dumpsters, something like that, because you never know there could be somebody laying there. I did have experience in that in Camden one time uh, where we came around the rear. We looked up. It was a good fire blowing out a couple windows. Next to the other guys go, yo, man, look at this dude. And he jumped out of that window. And then we were, you know, radioed out and said, hey, man, you got one victim out here. Uh, he jumped from the second floor rear. So, you know, primary search can start on the outside of the fire building. You know, give a, give a good scan, quick around, and, you know, you may – because how many times – I mean, in my career, it's happened kind of pretty often where you say, ah, they got jumpers, there's people jumping out of windows and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, and then you turn the corner and you actually see somebody come out of a window. And you're like, well, he's out of the building now. So there's nothing we can do about it. But if they're still conscious and alert, that person's going to offer you some great intelligence by telling you, okay, who else is in there? Is there anybody else in there? And I always found that when people came up to me soot covered or, you know, just in utter panic, and they point to a specific area of the building and they tell you their name, that's where they're at. That is where they're at. We had a, we had a double fatal some years back, uh, 14-year-old kids. Place was firebombed. It was a big crime thing. And it was hammering. So we're trying to make the push in. I was a captain at seven. And we're trying to make this push in. And, we're, you know, we're doing well, but we're getting our ass kicked. But right before we're going in, all I can hear is this guy saying, my cousin Tony is right there. He's right there. And uh, they were. They were right there, him and, him and a, a, a young girl. And unfortunately, they were already expired. But that's, that was the experience that I really took under my wing. One from Mike, learning from him, and then applying what he told me and looking around the arena that I work in because they're one and the same. And uh, that human behavior, again, in times of panic, they're going to revert to the one thing that they know. And if they can't do it, they're going to just do the most desperate thing they can. Um, of fires where there were multiple victims, can you talk about their proximity to each other? Was there any, oh, anything yeah. that you noticed? Oh, yeah. Um, so one sticks out. It was uh, horrific. Uh, about 4.30 in the morning, uh, I was still a fireman in rescue. It was right before I got promoted. And uh, it was July, 
we get uh, hit out for a box in East Camden. And as I'm driving a rig over one of the bridges to get to East Camden, you can see this column and it just, it's, you're like, man, this is a humdinger. This thing is off. So reports, heavy fire throughout, end of the row, numerous people reported trapped. So we pull up, guys are starting to push in, making good pushes. There's one, one burned up body already laying on the front lawn that came out the front door. He's just laying there screaming. So we start pushing in, uh, myself and another guy, we go in, we break off to the right to try to find a stairwell to get to the second floor. The place was so involved in fire that I couldn't identify anything within the room that would give me an idea of where I was at. So there, it was all gone. So, and, and I'll never forget this, but it was, it was such an unbelievable thing. You can hear people screaming in the basement through the floorboards. There was nine people trapped in this house. And now I'm talking about screaming so loud that, you know, your, your Scott mask is loud. You know, you're breathing in and out. So that's a loud piece of equipment. You hear other guys yelling. You hear hose lines being banged around. And you can hear people screaming through the freaking floorboards. So I finally find the stairs, my buddy Danny and I. We run up the stairs, went right over a victim at the top of the stairs. Didn't even feel him, didn't see him. Went right to the back bedroom, and I found a pile of children right underneath the window. About five of them. And the oldest one was hovering over all the little guys and uh, he was about 11 or 12 and thank god three truck had already put a ladder to the rear like that so i saw the tips of the ladder picked up one of the kids and he kind of like burped out and coughed a little bit and i said holy shit so i thought they were gone and we just started piling kids out the window and out of the four only one succumbed unfortunately uh was a fatal uh, we had four other fatals in there, but then when we got all those children out, we went back to the hallway, found that other body, radioed out for that one. Guys came up, started removing him. We started now at this point, you know, our vibe alerts are going off, but we're like, you know what? Let's just go to the front bedroom real quick, see if we got anybody else. There was two more people in that bedroom. So, you know, there's that areas that I was telling you about, right at the windows, top of the stairs, right in the hallway. And then right in the other bedroom at the window, you know, nowhere else, you know, they just weren't in the bathroom because there was just so much fire, but that's where we found those people. Uh, the people in the basement, <clears throat> they were, uh, sleeping down there. Um, and I, I forget if a few of them passed away or not, I can't recall, but yeah, that one, that one always sticks out. That was, uh, that was bad. That was bad. It, it, you know, I can just, I always picture those, that, that one, that one little dude just hovering over all these, all his brothers and sisters, you know, and it just reminds me like when you were a kid, you know, you used to run around in your underwear and that's all they were all wearing, you know, just probably having a good time and, you know, uh, but it was, it was, it was pretty brutal. And uh, I wore that on my shoulder for a long period of time. And I'm not the kind of guy that will, you know, go talk to somebody or some shit like that. That's just, I'm not trying to sound like a tough guy. It's just not me. I'd harness it into aggression, go into the gym, uh, do something like that, or go out to the gun range and just concentrate on, you know, shooting, stuff like that, get my mind off of stuff like that or something. But, uh, yeah, that was that was, that was was probably the one. And of all the ones I had with people who were trapped, uh, other than the guys that we lost in Gloucester City, but that was, that was one of the worst. Did that stimulate uh... – any conversation with with your firefighters if they were to find a victim as as the captain would you say hey double check the area before we start yoking this kid out 
Are you double oh, yeah. checking to make sure there's not multiple people in that oh, same room? Yep. Yep. So, you know, obviously the, you know, you find a child that there's that first objective, let's get that person out. But other guys that are in the room, if, you, if that guy doesn't really need that much help pulling his victim out or putting them out the window, then these other guys exactly got to be doing that, like bees on honey. Get underneath the beds, go to the closets, you know, check any type of little tiny void that these, these people or these children are likely to hide. I'm a firm believer in this. I've said this over a lot. It's only because of firefighters that children are the smartest people in burning buildings because we go out to their schools. Now, in the urban area, you know, and again, I use this as a joke, but uh, in the urban area, we have civilians that have seen more fire than some firemen. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, uh, you know, the, the <clears throat> kids are the smartest ones in a burning building because of us, because we go out there with the coloring books, with the little helmets, with the trailers, you know, especially in the suburbs. I remember when I was on a job in Cherry Hill, they couldn't wait for the firemen to get there because therefore they can climb over the rig. They can touch you. They can see the gear. They can hear the FCBA, you know, and they, and you have their attention and you give them that coloring book, that life safety manual, right? That's totally common sense that would save people's lives. And uh, just like the Top Finder program back in the early 70s with the reflective stickers to the windows, uh, and it proved successful. Um, you know, but yet these kids will go home and, and tell their mom and dad, we have to have a plan, we have to have a backup plan, a meeting place, and the parents don't care because all they care about is, you know, Susie down the street just got a brand new Range Rover, what are we going to do? We got to compete with the Joneses over here. Because the people in the suburbs are so fixated that, you know, um, and again, you know, forgive when I say this, and it's not arrogance, but it's more of a, they think they're more intellectually superior, and they think that bad things will never show up to their front door. And next, you know, when that fire does, <clears throat> it turns into an absolute shit show. So the children, again, in my opinion, are the smartest ones in a burning building. However, if fire is discovered via from a smoke detector or any other early detection, the kids are going to want to run back to their parents because they want to be with mom and dad. So it's likely to find them children right there in that hallway at the top of the stairs or what have you. Uh, or, you know, if they never wake up from any type of activation, if there even was one, you know, they'll be right there in their bedroom. Before we move off a of search, I want to hit one last topic and that's survival profiling. Can you talk a little, little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. There was uh there was an article that was written some years ago. Uh, I think it was Fire Engineering, whatever magazine it was. And I think, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it was, all, it was about the profiling, the survivability profiling of fire victims. So in other words, reading the fire building, looking at the fire conditioning, and basically saying, no way is anybody going to be able to live through that. And, you know, I didn't want, I never bought into that. And because I just, again, would do so much research from other very well-known fires throughout America in the last 60 years, 70 years, from like Coconut Grove to uh, the Beverly Hills Kentucky Supper Club in uh, uh, Kentucky that killed 176 people, MGM Grand, you know, uh, Happy Land, um, and then obviously the radio station nightclub fire. And I would just want to study them and like, all right, I'll put it to you this way. And I, I testified, I said this one time in the uh, court, they were trying to pin something on these uh, uh, occupants of an apartment that we found a guy in an apartment fire 
and he was actually digging through the wall to try to get out because there were security bars on the window. So that's where he was left to. He was actually left trying to pull himself through the wall to get out. And that's where we found him. He was stuck inside the wall. He died because there were security bars right there. So when I testified in that, you know, the one attorney was asking me, like, you know, well, how can you be sure that he was inside the wall? And I said, well, because that picture right there tells you. It's where he was at, right? So, and I said, desperate people are going to do desperate things. I said, well, unfortunately, when you look at the World Trade Center and you watch those people jump, that's the only option that they had, period. So human beings have a great sense of want to survive up until the very last, can't do it. This is all I got left. So I never discount or discard the human spirit in terms of survival. There's so many great stories out there of people being stranded out in the woods, the snow, the water, and, uh, you know, car wrecks or whatever have you, and they survive, you know, and uh, conditions are brutal. And that's why I just, I didn't want to buy into that. Um, I never want to discount, or uh, sorry, discard the human spirit, because again, we're there to put ourselves in the position to go get them. And uh, I want to do everything I possibly can to, you know, help that. Uh, we've been going for almost an hour. We want to kind of wrap up just a little bit with, with two things. Uh, the first is if um, you're, you're having a conversation with a newly promoted officer, whether that officer is taking your spot at Camden or whatnot, what advice are you giving them? Wow. And, and you might, you, it's almost like you're a, a fly on the wall before I retired. Uh, a guy that got promoted uh, after I left, he was in the house with us with rescue and, and uh, the squad. And, you know, again, I have a feeling that, you know, nice guys don't put fires out. Everybody could be a nice guy, but, and this guy was a nice guy, uh, but he just wasn't down with the program. You know, he wasn't into the intensity that the guys brought. He wasn't into the commitment of duty. Um, you know, arrogantly speaking, our platoon in our house, when I was on a job, Everybody knew they were like, dude, that house down there is tough. Those guys are tough. They're not, they're not assholes or nothing like that. They're just very, very tuned in, intense guys, and they don't play games. You know, we'll laugh, we'll have fun, we're like family, we love it. But again, when them bells go off, it's time to go to war. And uh, this guy was studying so hard, and he would sick out a lot, and you know, play this game or whatever. And he gets promoted, and. Uh, so I talked to him. He, he gives me a call. He asks me, hey, man, you got any tips? Sure, man, I'll help you out. Listen, you know, the minute you put that blue shirt on, if you change, like next thing you know, you're, you, know, you know, your gig line's all lined up. You got your pens, your red one and your black one, and you're, you know, spit shining and all this crap. Guys are going to see through that like an empty aquarium. And then that's going to follow the, your new attitude. And then no one's going to be around you. Well, that guy did it. And I think it was like guys were telling me within the first three weeks of him being a new captain, you know, it was like, uh, you know, I waited a long time to write somebody up. And I, I even said, come on, man, are you, are you kidding me? Are you serious? They're like, me, 100%. So, you know, talking to this guy, I talked to him again, and I'm like, dude, you know, what's your issue, man? You know, if you don't, if you don't like get over yourself. Just get over yourself. You're a captain. Okay, your responsibility is those five men and about five other 500 other people, which is their family, relying on you to make decisions so those men can go home. And if you're not up for that, then you should relinquish the position. Okay, it's not about looking good. It's about doing the job. 
And if you don't know it, study more. If you don't know it, talk to people about it because you weren't a hard hitter when you were with us, period. And he's like, oh, damn, that hurts. I said, well, guess what? The truth stinks. So when you sit there and you say, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to do this, you know, I want to be like this guy or like that guy. Don't be like a certain guy. Be you. You know, and then you and then if somebody puts you in check, if somebody puts you, you know, on front street because they're screwing up or you're watching guys sick out all the time in your company, they don't want to work with you. And when guys do, it's like this is a nightmare. You know, you're going to have to man up and say, you know what, maybe I should change something about myself. <laughs> Excuse me. But, um, you know, that that always got under my skin. Yeah, I, I get a little animated about it, but that always got under my skin. I, I was always like, you know, I would always see guys change immediately when they got promoted. And I was just like, you got to be kidding me, man. This is all you got. I said, what do you make your wife call you captain at home? Seriously? You know, and because uh, nobody cares. You know, 50 cents and, and it doesn't get you a cup of coffee. You know what I mean? So it's like, get over yourself. Be the best you could be. I always tell people and they say, oh, what'd you do for a living? I said, I was a fireman. That's all. I never said, hey, bro, I was a captain. I was this, I was that. No. Well, who cares? Nobody cares. I was a fireman. I was proud of it. I loved the job. Uh, I would do it all over again. Um, again, I, like I said out, out there, I, I lived a little boy's dream, you know? And, uh, yeah, I couldn't believe I got that emotional about it. I really, I, I you know, kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, was, was embarrassed about that. But uh, I just, you know, that's how much I love the fire department. That's how much I love being around people like you guys out there and, and uh, like-minded people, you know, that want to get out there and get it. <coughs> and, um, you know, that's, that, and that's the biggest reward for me. And uh, so I would just, again, just any new guys that are getting promoted out there is put yourself in the middle of the men because that's where you belong. And, uh, you know, so you, you'd mentioned getting in the face of, of people when they needed to be, uh, I'm assuming throughout your career, you had some confrontation with others that maybe didn't like your style or what you were doing. How'd you keep your moral and work compass straight? Uh, that oh, even when yeah. people, people came in and tried to check you maybe for being too into the job or too into the fitness or you're, you're too okay. intense. How'd you, how'd you I got gauge yourself as to not being too okay. over the top? This is, all right, I got a great story for you, okay? This is awesome. So I'm captain of sevens. Uh, we get hit out for a box at like quarter after six in the morning. Uh, good fire. Turn the corner. Guy, this guy's coming out the window. He jumps out the window as we turn the corner. Place is hammered. So I got this kid that was detailed to the company. Uh, the tour commander gave me a call that morning. Uh, the previous morning was like, hey, look, B, I got nowhere to send this guy. You know, can you take him? I'm like, oh, my God. And, and the dude just has a reputation of being a total freaking turd, just an absolute blue welfare recipient, a turd. So he's down there with us, and he's a nervous Nelly because he knows he's, he's with me, he's with these other guys. That are like, And the guys even told him when he came in, yo, man, you know, we ain't playing. You know, you, 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 know, you, don't, you ain't doing your job. Believe me, we're going to hook you out. And uh, he's like, no, oh, I'm good. I just, you know, I want to get my feel, man. I want to get my feel. It's one of these guys. So um, we get this box. We pull up. This kid's on the knob, right? I gave this kid the knob. Like, hey, man, you know, you're, you're in the batter's box, bro. This is, this is your spot. Turn the corner, get this good fire. This kid's doing the old air pack shuffle. And he's like, yo, oh, my pack, it's not working, not working. 
right. So I took my mask off my regulator. I took my air pack off and I gave it to him. I said, give me yours. And he was like, uh, I said, give me your fucking air pack. So I put his air pack on, hooked in, you know, he never made it into the building. Okay. So I come out and, you know, you, as you can probably imagine, I'm livid. Okay. And I grab him. I go like this, come here, let's go over here. I had one guy that had to pull 300 feet of four inch by himself all the way down the street because, you know, this sluggo didn't do his job. And, uh, so I pull him over there and he, right away, the kid goes, Oh cap, I know you're eccentric. I know you do this. And I said, wait a minute, what, what the hell are you talking about? Let me tell you something. Eccentric is what I'm not. Okay. Right now I'm pissed off because you were the strongest link on this fire ground and you're the biggest piece of garbage that's on this fire ground. And I'm telling you right now, I'm going right to that battalion and I'm going to go to the tour commander right there. And I'm going to tell them never again, will you ever be sent down here again? If you're sent down here again, this company will go out of service, period. You don't belong here. You don't belong in this fire department. You don't belong on this job. Okay. You're just here for two things, pension, I'm sorry, three things, pension benefits and pay and time off because that's all you were taught. So get out of my face, roll calls coming up. We pull back in front of sevens. The platoon that was coming on already had his stuff on the apron of the firehouse and said, beat it. So, and then word went around the firehouse and then I had a uh, deputy give me, come down to the firehouse and was like, oh, hey, Cap, look, man, I know the way things are. I said, no, nah, man. I'm not, I'm not pulling back on this. What are you going to tell my wife and my kids if I got killed there? Because this guy wasn't with us. You know, sorry, this guy's a nice guy, but he just didn't want to get in there. So, Chief, save it. Save it. You know, <clears throat> and this was, and that's just the way I get it. And I'm not saying it's right, but I'm not going to take this kind of behavior. And, again, you know, it could sound like I'm being, you know, this big beating on the chest and I'm not trying to come across like that but you know this job that we do is not a safe job period and we've got to get back to just mastering the basics and that is it repetitions of basic operations and you'll be the Jedi you will be a hard charging hard hitting well informed fireman and then get in the freaking gym and that's just me. That's in a nutshell. I feel like every fire department needs a Captain B on there to uh, <laughs> to, to be the, the barometer of what's right and, and how we should be doing stuff. So I have you come down to my department and you're going to talk to these new recruits. What advice are you giving to the new recruits as they come in? That you hit the lottery, um, look around at each other. You're going to spend the next 25 to 30 years with one another. You're going to shave next to one another. You're going to eat dinner with one another, eat breakfast with one another. You're going to put yourselves in position to actually depend on one another for survival for the next 25 to 30 years. So you take a good hard look at one another. Because if you want to call each other a brother, that's a term of endearment with deep respect. A reputation is earned. It's not given. And you can lose it within 30 seconds. Respect is earned, not given. And you have to earn every step, every day of the fire department. Every day, all the way up to the day you leave. Every day is earned. Every day is a reward. Because you're here, you put yourself in a position for the betterment of somebody else. And you are not the number one priority. The public is. They are, you are here for them. 
And if you don't feel that way, then I suggest you go find another line of work. It's that simple. I want to be safe. You want to be safe. The bottom line, everybody wants to be safe, but what we do is not safe. We can always calculate and analyze, but we're never going to remove risk in firefighting, ever. You know, um, I would just tell them, this is the greatest, one of the greatest experiences other than being a father and a husband that you'll ever have in your life is being a fireman. Um, you know, listening to Larry in the podcast you sent me yesterday, <clears throat> I was coming back from the gym and, you know, and he's like, you know, I go to a fire, I get to break stuff, I get to curse, I get to, you know, everything your mom told you you couldn't do, you know? And, man, I was like, damn, that's an excellent way to put it. It really is. And, and again, just, you know, everybody was a new guy, you know, and you're going to get your stones broke. You're going to get this. You're going to get that. You're going to be nervous. You're going to have this nervous excitement. You're going to have butterflies in your stomach. It's normal. It's normal. Gravitate to positive people. They're going to be contagious. Get to them. And then as time goes on, you be a contagious person and you will draw that positive force. And then there's going to be other people looking around that fire department and maybe in them platoon saying, Man, how come everybody wants to be down there? It's because those guys are good. It's because those guys take the job seriously. And it's because everybody in that firehouse knows that whatever is handed to them when the bells go off, they are the solution to that problem, period. And there's nobody better. Uh, well That's said. I, I feel like sometimes uh, in the older guys who kind of get it and you being retired, our time in the job is so short. And man, yep. don't waste it. The don't best years of your life are on those rigs with yep. those men. It is. It is. It is like literally, you know, I would just remember, I would get just, I'd have a smile on my face. I would sometimes just laugh, uh, hitting the siren and the air horn, holding the phone and looking in the sky and seeing smoke and stuff like that, you know, or pulling out of the house with both, both companies and the battalion going down to a box or something like that, you know. That is just fucking awesome. <laughs> I mean, it is just absolutely awesome to see that kind of stuff, you know, to listen to the men on the radio, to hear the rigs fire up, to hear the air horns, the sirens, and to hear them rigs roll out and just watch it. You know, it, it's just, uh, man, it, it gets you. I mean, it did to me. And that's what just, it, you know, and, and I just revert back to the athletics, you know, it's like you're going out to fight, man, and it's time to get it on. and. um but you're right, man. It's just the time, and it's so fast. The time goes so fast. I can't believe it. I can't believe I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not even there anymore. And I know I made the right decision by leaving. It was time. You know, it was time. But, um, but man, what a job. And it's, I don't even say it's a job. It's a lifestyle. You're always going to be a fireman. I'm always going to be a fireman. I'm never going to not say I wasn't one. I, I, I'm a fireman. And, uh, I was just, God blessed me to work where I worked in both departments and the people that I worked with that mentored me, that taught me. And uh, I may not be a rich man financially, but I'm probably one of the most wealthiest men in the world when it comes to my family and all my friends around me. There's no ends, ifs, or buts about that. Well, Brian, I appreciate you sharing everything with everybody. Uh, I said your story uh, and the things you uh, teach are awesome. Your your passion for the job is, is second to none. And I just, I really appreciate uh, you coming on today. Uh, if anybody, uh, I know you're, you're retired, you're kind of 
at an undisclosed location in the hills uh, planning something. But if anybody wants to get a hold of you, got any questions, anything, are you still doing stuff or are you putting yourself uh, out mean, there or I'm, what? I'm taking a break for a while, uh, but you can just hit me up on Facebook, Brian Emenecker or B. Emenecker on Instagram. Um, <laughs> I don't post any fire department stuff. I post a lot of other stuff. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, you can just reach out to me, anything. You know, hit me up on those social media platforms, ask questions. And believe me, I'll, I'll, I'll help, uh, you know, if there's anything I can help anybody with. If I don't have the answer, I'll look for it and I'll get back. So I had a gentleman contact me from California just uh, the other day. Uh, so I'm going to end up calling him on the phone and talking to him. I never even shook the man's hand, but he reached out to me. And uh, that's where people could find me. And maybe one day, you know, in a little while, I just want to take a break for a while. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I got, I got tired of hearing my voice. You know, hmm. I got tired of hearing my voice. And, uh, you know, relevancy is a big thing. And, you know, there's a lot of guys coming up right now, and they got a lot to offer uh, information-wise. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, and, and again, real quick, it, it, I don't care how many fires you go to, and I don't care how many fires you don't go to. We're all the same. We're all in the fire department. We're all brothers here. It doesn't make you any better than anybody else because you go to a lot of fires. I'm a firm believer of that because I could learn from guys that may not go to a lot of fires. And uh, that's what's great about the fire service, you know, in, in our brotherhood. So, uh, you know, just I hope guys can keep that in mind, you know, because we got we got to stick together. We really do. Well, thanks, Brian. I appreciate you coming on and uh, hope to keep in touch with you. And, uh, yeah, and until next time, thanks for listening to the Journeyman Firefighter Podcast.